Hi, this is Stephen Laddick. And I'm Kent McPhail. Welcome to What the M, the podcast about the mortgage default servicing industry. What the M is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes dropping every other Friday. So, Steve, how's it going today? I understand maybe you guys are having a, a little weather up Pennsylvania way. How's it going up there, sir? Oh, it's a frigid day today. We're starting to get a little snow. First snow we've seen all year. The wind is just relentless, though. I mean, we just literally had a tree come down in our parking lot out back. So if you hear a loud crash during this podcast, you'll know what it was. There you go. Well, and before you got on and I heard about the weather, I was going to say that I was having a blustery day in the words of, uh, you know, Winnie the Pooh. However, sound like you guys are really taking it up there. So so let me start the introduction of our guest. Our guest today on the show, Mr. Jerry Mavalia. He's the CEO of Guardian Asset Management a world-class property management company specializing in protecting and preserving assets in all 50 states, as well as all the U.S. territories. He graduated from Fordham University, where he received a BS in finance. He's been in the industry for over 37 years, default servicing industry. He's worked in management in several different places, including J.P. Morgan Chase. Jerry was the co-founder of Asset Management Specialist, Inc., and he is currently the CEO of Guardian Asset Management. Welcome to the show, Jerry Mavilio. Thanks for having me, Kent. It's a pleasure being on the show. Welcome, Jerry. Glad to have you here. Oh, that's great. I'm uh, very pleased. So right before we got on, it turns out that Jerry and Steve are one county apart up there. So in the South, that would basically make y'all neighbors or almost cousins. So mm-hmm. y'all are just down around the corner. So, hey, Jerry, tell us, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in the default servicing industry. Sure. I'm from New York, if you can't detect it from my accent. I'm a product of uh, two wonderful parents, immigrant, a mom from uh, Germany. My dad was born here, but his parents were immigrants from Italy. My mom came over hardworking, got her job in New York City the first day she was here. My dad grew up in a tough Italian household. His parents came over from Italy and worked on the uh, New York City subway system. His dad left there, started a cement block business on Long Island, and my dad and his twin brother worked that cement block business from grade school to high school. It didn't permit him to finish high school. They pushed education. You know, they wanted me to go to college. So even though during grade school and high school, I worked, they made me do well in high school. And then uh, that led me to Fordham, where I uh, focused in on business. But along the way, I was given an opportunity to work for J.P. Morgan Chase as part of a co-op program while I was at Fordham. It was in the late 80s. It was around the mega mergers. So they were looking for back office workers. So they're hiring kids as part of a co-op program. So I came in, I was hired. I was hired with about 150 other students. And we were doing back office work for mergers and acquisitions for them. And the biggest merger at the time was GE and RCA. The first day they had us opening up mail and it was shareholders that were redeeming their stock from RCA. And it ended up being like, I think I had opened up Bob Hope's RCA stock and he had <laughs> millions of shares in, in uh, RCA. But my first I remember there was a group of students we were working, we were supposed to open up mail, and they weren't working. I said, well, you know, what are you guys doing? You're not opening up mail. Two minutes later, I hear my name yelled from the back office, and they said, Mavelle, we want to talk to you. So I was a little nervous. I went back to the back room, and they said, you know, we heard you getting into it with these guys. What went on? I said, well, they weren't working. So a minute later, I said, how would you like to be in charge of uh, these 150 kids to run this project? 
<laughs> and the manager at Tyneside, and he, he brought me aside later. He said, man, I really need your help. I'm going through, you know, a midlife crisis. I'm going through a divorce. My head's not right. I need someone young with your energy to manage this project. So I said, yeah. So we were working 18, 20 hours a day. And uh, as long as you worked past six, they gave you breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So I didn't have to <laughs> buy food. So I loved it. Uh, I did that. I was lucky to be picked up uh, after graduation. It was a tough time in the market. If you remember Black Monday in 87, uh, oh, yes. the market crashed on October 19th. And <laughs> I always remember it because that's my mother's birthday. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I feel for her being associated with that day because guys on Wall Street really literally jumped out of windows. It was a bad day. Uh, so I did that for a while until they sold the unit. And then my wife and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And that's where I went and I met an individual who ran a residential foundation company. I, I worked there for a number of years and he was a great guy. His name was Mark Round. He built a nice size business, but then he became ill and I knew I had to make a jump. So my wife was taking an Italian class. She met a guy. So he said, you know, I have, based on your experience, I have a friend in property management. So I took an interview with that company, met a great gentleman, and he was helping run a, a property management company in Atlanta. But he was running a division that was bidding contracts with HUD, kind of what we do today. They were called real estate asset management contracts. And there were contracts with the federal government to take in their foreclosed units uh, as REO and then fix them up, put them on the market, make them ready to show condition and sell them. So I said, you know what? This would be good, you know, based on my construction experience, my management experience and my finance experience. Uh, he taught me the government procurement side, but then he needed someone during the day to run the contracts that they had. They had contracts all over the country doing this. So I gained great experience, gained good relationships with the local managers, and we were growing as an organization. So about three years go by, and there's an opportunity to bid a contract in the Philadelphia area. And I became friends with the manager there, and it was set aside for small business. So my current employer couldn't bid. So we decided to break off and start asset management specialists to bid those contracts. And we won. Uh, we won a contract in Philadelphia and then we won a contract in Montgomery County, where Steve is, and Bucks County. Then we won a contract in New Jersey, then New York, and then we started to grow. What what kind of changes have you seen in the, the HUD REO programs over the years? I suspect you've seen a lot of pretty dramatic change over time. Oh, yeah. I've seen tremendous change. Uh, some good, some not so good, but overall technology, as you know, has improved. Properties would come in, we'd prepare them for sale. Homes were listed on the MLS. They were listed by brokers that specialized in foreclosures, pushed them to owner occupants and first time home buyers, worked with housing counselors. We got to know those housing counselors. We got to know those brokers. We would take tours with HUD at the properties to recommend improvements to the properties. It was a really hands-on program. So in that way, it may have been a little inefficient the way 
they gathered bids. Every Friday was a bid opening. So all the brokers would come to the HUD office and submit their bids through a sealed bid. Once they all come in at 11 a.m., all the sealed envelopes would be opened and the, the winning bidders would be announced. So then, you know, things changed. Then they went to a system where bids were submitted through telephone and then they went through an online bidding system. And then we were forced to go on a web-based system. And then um, electronic bidding came into play. Yeah, it seems to me that even though, you know, with technology over the years, things have gotten a lot more arm's length, but it's been those exact technologies that have allowed law firms like mine or companies like yours to function on a much larger geographic area. Yeah, it allowed us to expand, expand rapidly for economies of scale. It really did. I think the biggest change of, of late was is the CWCOT process. That stands for claims without conveyance of title. What it allows is the mortgagee to sell the property at foreclosure sale for fair market value. Instead of prior to that, bids had to meet the outstanding loan amount and any- A full debt. Yes, right. exactly. So now the mortgagee makes- performs an appraisal and the new upset price at foreclosure sale is uh, discounted slightly off the appraised value. And not only that, um, large auctioneers can post these properties now for sale and market them. So like, for example, in Montgomery and Bucks County, where Steve and I reside, they still have foreclosure sales at the courthouse. Well, auction companies can market those properties. So what that's done is, um, is really opened it up for institutional investors to purchase because you have to have certified funds at the foreclosure sale for each. It's, it's been interesting to track that Montgomery County is actually online now. Is through, is it okay. uh, when they took off, their number of third-party bidders just accelerated. It was enormous that uh, they were selling close to 70% of their properties to third parties. To third party. Now, it's interesting with 2023 in the state of interest, in the state of uh, inflation and uh, mortgage rates, that's come down. It's only about 30% selling third-party, but still 30% is so much higher than their historical average. Bucks, Bucks County toyed with the the online bidding, but they've gone back to the live sale. Yeah, and that's done in Doylestown. And I've I've, yes. I've been in, uh, on live sales, but you see them, you see the same people bidding. So many of these people that are bidding, they may represent institutional buyers. True. And um, so that's taken from the program a little bit in that prior to CWCOT, if a property was conveyed, the likelihood of an owner-occupant purchasing the property was, is greater. For first-time home buyers and the underserved and owner-occupants, I think it's left them out in the cold a little bit, the auction process. Well, to segue on that topic of the auction process, well, how can HUD and the GSEs help improve or make home ownership easier for millennials or Gen Zers or first-time buyers? I think now with rates up and um, you know supply being low, so market conditions are tough for first-time home buyers, and especially millennials and Gen Zs. And I see that as a problem because home ownership is so important in our in our society. You know, it gives you roots in the community. It gives you um, uh, roots to start a family. So I think if HUD and Fannie Mae is doing this, and they're doing a great job, they're repairing a lot of their REO, and they're not afraid to put 
put 60, 80,000 in and make those capital improvements. So a first time home buyer can move in and obtain a loan and not have the capital improvement costs right out of the gate. And I think HUD's considering that on the go forward, doing what Fannie does. And um, there are repair loan programs, FHA 203K program, but still that's a big obstacle with interest rates the way they are for first-time home buyers. So if well, and- put money back into the homes that they've saved through the CWCOT process, I think that would help first-time home buyers. Yeah, I mean, if you're a first-time home buyer and you're already you know, probably pushing the envelope of covering the mortgage to begin with, even if there are programs that would allow you to get repair costs. Now, you know, you're having to tote the note on that, that second and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, making it even harder. And, you know, I saw a figure, I can't recall exactly what it was, but the percentage, um, and again, I think this has changed a little bit with the interest rates and everything, but the percentage of institutional buyers versus first time home buyers and just the, the competition, you know, as a young couple, you know, trying to purchase a house or, or a young individual trying to purchase a house, competing with two or three or four of the conglomerates that were out, you know, soaking those up dramatically. Interesting. So, Steve, do you want to take off into the sports world like we usually do? Uh, absolutely. But first, let me ask you, Jerry, about the second, third and fourth quarters of this year. I mean, with the types of things happening at Signature Bank and the others and where our economy is, do you see challenges ahead for guardians specifically in, in, in the industry in general? The biggest thing for us is we're under prescribed uh, rate. We're under prescribed rate schedules for our services. So if those rate schedules don't increase with the rate of inflation to keep pace with material costs, labor costs, um, fuel costs, that's a concern for our whole industry. And our industry has lobbying, has lobbied for uh, increased rates. And just this past week, Fannie Mae did increase their rates for property preservation and inspection services. So, so that has helped our industry. Um, our, our industry co- group called NAMFIS, National Association of Mortgage Field Services, have been lobbying for us. Last year, Steve, you and I sat on a panel at the government forum hosted five star, uh, five star, and I spoke about this. And after I spoke about this, um, someone from the MBA uh, helped me write an opinion piece that up went up that went up to the uh, agencies. So they listened, at least Fannie Mae did. And I, and I expect that uh, Freddie Mac, the VA and HUD will uh, follow suit and increase their rates to keep up. Yeah, that, that was a very good point you made. And that forum we spoke at was back in April of last year. And you were right on time with them because it was before all the inflation news really started breaking over the summer about mm-hmm. how much was. So you were in the right place at the right time on that conversation. No, and and the NBA picked up on that, thankfully. And they've been pushing hard for our industry to keep pace with inflation and to uh, improve our our pricing schedule. Very good. So as uh, Kent mentioned, we always veer off into sports. So being that you're a New York area guy, I got to ask you, though, are you the uh, Yankees, Rangers, Giants type or from Long Island? Are you are you the Ets guy, the Nets, Jets, Mets? Well, I've been here now, Steve, for 37 years. So I've really become an Eagle fan now and have. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Now I have season tickets. Um, this year, we, we gave a lot of them away to employees that 
that uh, performed well and we gave them as prizes. But I really pulled for them during the uh, during the Super Bowl, and we should have won that game. It's March. You got any predictions for your your college team in this tournament? They didn't make it. They lost in the semifinals of the Atlantic Ten. They had a new coach this year who did a great job. They had, I think, 27 wins, but still didn't make it to the tournament. And it was disappointing, but I think they would have had to win the Atlantic 10 to get in. That's right. VCU won. Yeah, I forgot VCU about that. VCU won. Um, but I really think this year could be Kansas. Duke's making a strong comeback, so you could see Duke, Duke go a long way. Duke's a good pick. Yeah, either one of those would be, I could see. So we always ask this question and uh, sort of a wrap-up question for all of our guests. But Jerry, if you had an opportunity to sit down with the 20-year-old version of yourself, what sort of advice would you give that young man? In retrospect, I think in retrospect, be courageous. Don't fear hard work. Be the hardest worker in the room. And I would say, um, you know, hard work doesn't get unnoticed. Hard work usually attracts a, uh, a solid, a great mentor and um, a mentor that's going to steer you in the right direction in your career and someone you may end up succeeding. So I would say be resilient, be the hardest worker in the room and um, stay the course and it will get noticed. Well, that is fabulous advice. And I really, really appreciate uh, you being on the podcast. Jerry and I just met in uh, Orlando at the NBA and um, had a wonderful dinner down there and, and got to make his acquaintance. And, you know, you have a really interesting background. Thank you so much for being here, Steve. Jerry, thank you. Truly appreciate it. Hope to see you soon. Hope to see you. I hope you make it down to the government forum again this week. Yeah, I'll be down again, Steve. And thank you both. Thank you, Kent and Steve, for the opportunity. Hey, truly our pleasure. Truly our pleasure. If you like what you hear on our podcast and want to hear some more, please rate, review, and subscribe to What the M on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to visit with us on social media, we can be found at What the M Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.